And we are finishing off today the series, We the Church. I get the privilege of landing the series, but in a sense, it's not a landing. I believe this is a commissioning, a leaping off, a, a, a jumping off the edge into the great unknown, because I believe that it's time for us to remind our hearts of who the church is. So I wanna take you back to the start of the church. And no, it's not some uh, crusty old upper room where people in long robes are debating what should be in the Bible, what shouldn't be. It's not in about some meeting forum when people started to name denominations and how will this look and how will services look? No, no, no. Way before that, we're gonna go back to what was originally in Jesus' heart. And we're gonna go to Matthew chapter 16. It'll be on the screen behind me. It reads as follows. Matthew 16, verse 13 to 18. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Let's pray. I thank you, Father God, for this immense privilege to be preaching to my friends again. I thank you, Father God, would you do something deep in our hearts as we open your word and your spirit descends upon us to open our eyes. I pray this simple prayer, God, but significant prayer, would you awaken us? Would you light the flame? Would you stir us from slumber that will never be the same? I thank you for this, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. I wanna take you to the very edge. I wanna take you to the precipice, the launching pad of this thing called church, what is this divine concept that was in Jesus' heart the thing that can get sullied in our eyes, the thing that we can get frustrated with, the thing that documentaries can exhibit the failures of, the things that we can have offense against, the thing that we can get cold towards, the thing that we can get blase over, this thing called church, the ecclesia, the gathering of the saints, this thing that Christ has deep in his heart. I wanna take us to that place and I wanna push us right to the edge. I wanna invite you to come to the edge with me today. Because this is the reason for us, is this no time for kumbaya, white picket fence, playing games church. I don't know about you, but I've seen the news. You don't have to be, uh, if you, unless you've been living in a rock, you don't have to be a scientist or an end times uh, fundy to realize that things are getting real, people. Yeah. It's time for the church to realize what A.W. Tozer once said. He said, it's time to throw down the white picket fence version of Christianity and pick up the danger encircled path of obedience. Let's throw down some white picket fences and let's come to the edge. So today, from this text, I wanna give us three things that were in Jesus' heart when he talked first initially in this moment about his church. Number one, we have to understand Jesus' passion. Jesus' passion. What is Jesus passionate about? What burns in his heart? What sent him to the cross? What rose him from the grave? What, sent, what is he waiting for? Seated at the right hand of the Father. What is the thing? What is it? Why is this thing called earth still spinning around right now? Why isn't it all culminated in us all in heaven? It's because his passion is for people. Jesus' passion is for people. The incredible reality is in this narrative of Matthew chapter 16. It says that he took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. We, before we move on, we have to understand who he took on this little field trip. Disciples. Unqualified. These, these uneducated, unlikely, 
Not the elite, not the, not the official, not the equipped, not the deeply religious. No, people who had not made the grade, those who had been discarded by the religious society of the day, those who had now gone to do the trade of their father, just fishing on the, on the, on the shores. A rabbi comes and says, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men and I'm gonna take you on a field trip and I'm gonna tell you that it's not on the elite or the amazing or the spectacular or the officious, but it's on you, the unqualified and uneducated and unlikely that I'm gonna build my church. Because Jesus' passion is for people. It's for people. I love the narratives in scripture. You can't go far until Jesus, you see him, the crowd surrounding him, but he's always looking for the one. He's not about numbers and crowds and how many followers I've got. He couldn't care less about how many likes he's got on his Facebook post. He is going after the one. Scripture says he had to go through Samaria. No, he didn't. Geographically, he could have gone a different route, but he had to go through Samaria, not because geography dictated it, but because his heart is for people. There was a woman there at a well at noon that he had to meet. Jesus' passion is for people. He's in a crowd and the crowd are pressing around him, pressing all over him. And he's, as he's walking and he's got an agenda, I have to go and do a miracle, Jairus' house. That's where I'm going and the crowd are there. And he stops everything because he says, somebody touched me, one person. Peter says, geez, there's so many people here. How can you say somebody touched you? There's so many people touching you. The CDC regulations would be appalled. There's so many people, but he said, no, somebody touched me because power, somebody deliberately touched me and power went out from me. And he stops this whole thing to redeem one woman who had been caught, who had been in the issue, had an issue of blood for 12 years. Jesus' passion is for people. The scripture says in Mark chapter two, that he, as he walks along, he saw Levi at his tax collector's booth. Tax collector, the the, 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 uh, the guy who people had been discarded by society and he says, come, Matthew, I wanna come to your house. Come follow me. And they went and had dinners at Matthew's house and the scripture says that he had dinner with tax collectors and reputable or notorious sinners. You know your sin is bad when you are the notorious sinner. Like you're known for your sin. This is not under the cover stuff. Like tax collectors and the dodgy of the dodgiest. They were the guys who Jesus was keeping company with. It blows my mind still that the sinless one would come and make his residence, make his companions these type of people. Not, not like, okay, fine, I'll, put, I'll carve out some niche time for those dodgy people. They can come for a counseling session. No, he goes out of his way to go and have a dinner with him. So much so the reports of the religious elite, they asked him, why does he eat with such scum? Healthy people don't need a doctor, Jesus said. Sick people do. He said, I came not to those who think they're righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Last night, we, um, it's the 30th of September, and we thought we had enough electricity to make it to the 1st of October. But at eight o'clock, the power went out, and we're like, oh, load shedding, until we realized there's no load shedding. The fault is ours, or should I say, the fault is mine. <laughs> I didn't put enough electricity to get us over the line. And uh, the, 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 the fallout of this is that actually the new ESCOM meter that we've got if it goes down to zero, it just dies. And I've been told that you need to plug it into the wall to be able to insert more power, but I'm going, but there's a fault in the logic because when I put it in the, when I put, when I put it in the wall, there's no power. I, I, don't, I can't understand. So maybe afterwards I need some pastoral help to come and chat to me. So we've been in the dark since last evening, scrambling around, trying to work out, Googling frantically, how's this going, going to people's house, plugging our meter and trying to see what happens. But it's so frustrating when we, I go outside and everyone else's home is the light. Load shedding's better. We all can suffer together. 
Misery loves company, but this sucks on my own. Where I'm there, I'm going, there's so much good sports on TV. <laughs> I'm just confessing. So if anyone wants to invite us for rugby tonight, just... Yeah. But I think it's the reality that actually, I think, how, how dreadful is it, people, the worst thing is when you think you have light, but you're actually a dark. When the world around you, when, man, the church, can I, how sad is it if Jesus walked past our churches and he sees that we are going about doing things, busy, but he's actually saying, you're dark. You're not awake to the true passion that burns in my heart. Can I tell you, we as a church will build this church. We, the church, will build it on what is passionate in his heart, not our passions. You might be passionate about something, and you might be passionate about something, but let me tell you, if it's not lining up with his passion for people, we will not go after it. Because this is not my church. It's not yours, it's his. Jesus says this. And I believe it's true deep in our hearts, we've said a million times, that a church without the broken is a broken church. So if you are here today and you say, I'm broken, underneath the veneer of my smile and everything going on, I'm broken, I'm debauched, am I welcome here? Let me tell you, you are welcome here. You're welcome with the rest of us. Because Jesus says, the righteous, those who think they're righteous don't need a doctor, it's those who are sick that do. And the doctor is in session, he's here. Charles Spurgeon once said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in, in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. I love that image of a church that is on the very precipice, come to the edge, the edge of hell, where people are trying to leap over going on their own way, but the church aren't cowering in the, in the corner going, you shouldn't go that way. The church on the front line saying, no! Let me, I will stop, I'll help you, I'll do whatever I can. That's the image of the church that I want burned in our hearts. This is the reality is that for a number of years, we had this gentleman who used to come to church and he would come once, once in a month, once in a while, and he was well put together and he started to find friends in the community and God was doing a significant work beneath the surface. But, and if you saw him on the outside, you wouldn't know that there was the chaos that was underneath, the shame, the guilt that he was carrying. And then he got sick and we, no one knew really why, and we and, and got sicker and sicker until the moment he, he, we got a phone call, and, uh, and for time's sake, this is the, the paraphrased version of the story, he said, Gabe, I need you to come, I, I'm, on, I'm on the edge, I'm, I'm on death's door. And I went and sat at his house and started to chat with him, and, and I remember just the exchange, just beautiful, of hearing what God had been doing in his heart, but I could tell there was something. He wanted to say something, but he couldn't. And it got to the moment where I was sitting across him, holding his hands, his fragile hands, his body got weaker and weaker, and the strong Beautiful man, put together man, getting free, weaker by his, his ill health, holding my hands and his eyes then dropped from mine, wouldn't look up because he had to say the thing that was deep in his heart, the thing that had been hidden for years and years. And he said, Gabe, I want to tell you, and, he, and he, te- quivering lips, his t- eyes were starting to drip with tears. He said, I have HIV. I'm dying of AIDS. And I remember his eyes flicked open to look at mine to see how I would do, what I would respond. As I'd been holding his hands, would I recoil? Would I pull away? Would I be shocked? And, I'm, and I, the first thought that I had was going, how devastating that a man could be coming to our church and have that deep shame and say, but I, I will never tell anybody about that. That he had to endure that on his own for so many years, that shame that Jesus died for, paid for. 
But then in that moment, I tell you, as I was able just to weep with him and hug him, and, I can get, and the, the grace of God may go over that deepest shame, that deepest stain that haunted him for decades. As he did, as people in this church loved him to his very end, hospital visit after hospital visit, standing with him, crying with him, praying with him, when he lost the ability to talk, singing over him, reading scripture over him. This beautiful end as this man went, went in his weakest state, but went into his embracing glory and complete strength, completely clothed in the righteousness of Christ alone. At his funeral, as we were able to declare, this man followed Jesus. He made the decision to follow Christ with confidence in our hearts. In that moment, I said, thank God for the church. That in the weakest moments, we could rally around and point to the strong one, the only one who can redeem. This is, this is why we do it. These type of people, I wanna tell if you're here and you think there's something that you've done that's too far gone for God, let me tell you, Jesus is not afraid of your sin. He does not recoil from it. He's not like in the shower when you find that weird piece of hair. Oh, who has been in my shower? He's not that. Jesus is not that. When this is the reality, he actually became your sin. Jesus tells us that he defeated our sin, and Jesus says that he'll actually ultimately free us from our sin. He wants to wade into your mess and redeem you. So I invite you. Come to the edge, out of hiding type of playing church, the out of self-preservation church. Would we be a church that comes to the edge of ourselves, edge of what is comfortable to us, edge of what, what, what is called to us and say, we're gonna open our homes. We're gonna open our hearts. We're gonna come with an expectation that God is gonna meet with people. It starts with us. We have to first understand Jesus' passion is people. Secondly, we have to also understand Jesus' power. I love this narrative. Jesus takes the disciples the unqualified, the uneducated, the unlikely, and he takes them to a place, Caesarea Philippi. Now this place, when he takes them there, this field trip is one that the boys are looking around going, we probably should have got a permission slip from mom and dad for. Because this is the furthest they've probably ever been from their home. But also they are now not just in the, the this is not just a nice little field trip where they're able to go and do some sightseeing, they're in enemy territory. Caesarea Philippi was known for its syncretistic worship. It's worship of idolatry. It had been a place throughout of scripture where they had set up the high places, the places that the Lord uh, detested, where they would have sacrifices to other gods. Caesarea Philippi was a place where they started to worship the goat god Pan. And for Pan, they, 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 Pan de demanded that they have child sacrifices at that place. They would have sexual perversion upon sexual perversion at that place. It makes what is going on in our world today look tame, PG-13 people. Caesarea Philippi was actually so vile that the people around it, there was such a demonic stronghold, it was this it's a hole in the ground, a crack. In a sense, it was the very edge of the known world. And Jesus takes these disciples right to the very edge. And, and that, that little crack, that place, was colloquially known as the gates to Hades. They knew that place was a place with the shrieks of the demonic. That's a place of perversion and debauchery. So good little Jewish boys should not be there. They're going, Jesus, where are you taking us? This is crazy. He's led them to the very gates of Hades. He says, boys, I wanna tell you about the church I'm gonna build. This is not gonna be a church that's neat and tidy on the suburban corner. This is not a church that I'm gonna build that's gonna be a nice, neat rose, everyone in their finest suits, everyone saying, bless you, brother, bless you, sister, and leaving unchanged. No, we're gonna be a church on the offensive. We, he says, come to the edge with me. I wanna take you to the very gates of hell, and I wanna tell you that in this place, when you are terrified, when there's shrieks and there's perversions going around you, where there's the blood of animal sacrifice over there, and the Jewish boys are going, what will I tell mom when they say, how was your day? 
And they're terrified, shaking in their boots. Jesus says in that place, he says, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail. In that moment, you're saying, this stuff, what you think is the darkest of darkness, this will not prevail about what I'm gonna build. Because it's based not on our ability to organize and get everyone lined up and, and try and convert people and moralize people. No, it's based on Jesus' power. It's his power. His power is linked to his heart. He's passionate for people, but he also wants to show off his power. I want to remind us about the church that Egypt rose, tried to squash out God's elect, but Egypt fell. Babylon rose and tried to squash God's elect, but Babylon fell. Rome rose and tried to squash out God's elect, but Rome fell. COVID rose and tried to push us all back into our home, but COVID fell, but the church of Jesus Christ remains. And she will remain because why? He will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. But I have to remind us, the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, we have to remind our hearts that we're not called to fight against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities of darkness. This is spiritual warfare. I wanna remind us that we have to fight with a power that's beyond our own ability. Acts 1 verse 8 tells us that we will receive power. You will receive. Not earn, not achieve, not work into, not when you get mature enough. No, you will receive as a gift. He wants to pour this over you. Power. Life-changing, demon-chasing, resurrection power. When, not if, not maybe, no, but when the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of Jesus, the one from heaven to earth comes upon you, comes towards you, comes on you in favor. And I love that last verse, it says, when it comes upon you, yes, you in the back row, yes, you in the back row, yes, you in the middle row, yes, you trying to hide, yes, you who doesn't, knows what, oh, I hope no one finds out what I did last night, yes, you who's unqualified, yes, you who thinks you, you don't measure up. He says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, uneducated, unqualified, unlikely you. Power. I can't explain it. But I want to tell you there's a verse in scripture that terrifies me. In 2 Timothy chapter three, it talks about people who says they have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. Can I tell you, for many, most of my life, I think I've had a form of godliness. People are looking at, hmm, he's got it together. But sometimes I think I deny its power. But I'm saying no more, no more. Time to throw down the white picket fence of Christianity. Pick up the danger and circled path of obedience. This is the reality that this is the barbarian way. The Bible says signs and wonders follow the preaching of the gospel. We're preaching the gospel. I'm expectant for signs and wonders to follow it. It's not on me, he will build this church. It's his power, but I have to expect it. Let me remind us, if you say, oh, I don't know about that, well, let's not get too charismatic, Gabe. Let me tell you, you are a miracle. You should be dead. You shouldn't be following Jesus. You shouldn't be here. Let me tell you, I know half your stories and they're dreadful. But Jesus, but Jesus, I know my story. I say it's dreadful, but Jesus. Let me remind us, we were dead, we are now alive. We were addicted, we've been set free. We were in the kingdom of darkness, now we're citizens of heaven. We are miracles in progress. But we're not just miracles ourselves, we're called to carry them. And I wanna remind us that he still makes the leper clean. Jesus still sets the demonized free. He still makes the barren woman pregnant. He still puts the lonely into families. He still does his best work when situation seems darkest. 
He's t- he wants to lead us right. He says, come to the edge. Come to the edge. Oh, that's, that's, that's fringe lunatic stuff. No, that's scripture. That's Bible 101. Lay your hands on the sick and they will recover. I can argue it left and right ways or I can expect it to happen and say, yes, Lord, at your service. We're not in the business of explaining the power of God. We are in the business of demonstrating the power of God. When I pray for the sick and some get healed and some don't, and people go, oh, why, why? I don't know. But it's not my job to just explain it. I can come up with a theology to try and do it, but you can have your theology with no power or you can have your theology with power. And I'm taking the second option. I want to see the gospel preached with power. I wanna see dead people come alive. I wanna see the broken people restored. I wanna see the lame person start to leap. I want to see the barren woman singing. I want to see it because this is his church. He's the one who prescribes it. I tell you the story of that we've, at nauseam, we've told the story, but we'll keep telling it, of a couple called Lionel and Kath McGaw. Not the whole narrative now, but a story of, of pain, of brokenness, of divorce, gone their separate ways, in much chaos, in much sadness, and broken and perversity and bad decisions, but Jesus. And I remember a moment where I sat with Lionel and Kath as they, at uh, bootleggers, if you wanna go check it out later, bootleggers and table view, Fiona and I sitting opposite of them and them saying, we want to get married again. And they're talking through their, their wedding after a number of years apart, living as divorced, getting reunited, getting remarried only because of Jesus. And as they're telling their story, and as they're saying, this is how the, we want the wedding to go, we want this to start with that, this to that, they got to the part where they said, um, where Kat said, and I'm gonna, just, I just, I wanna walk it down, I don't wanna walk down the aisle because we've done that already. Let me just stand at the front and I'll just, we'll just do it in normal clothes. And Lionel McGaw looked at her and said, no, you're gonna walk down the aisle and you're gonna wear white. And at that moment, a man saying that about his bride who had, in, in all natural sense, walked away and betrayed him and went after another relationship at his expense, he says, no, 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 I want, to sh- I want you to walk down that aisle in white. And what's even more, the incredible thing in that moment, he says, at that wedding, I'm gonna not wait at the front for you. I'm gonna come to the back and fetch you because that's what Jesus did for you. Let me tell you that bootleggers, I was sobbing. My wife was like, keep it together. This is it's a public place. I'm like, I'm shattered because in that moment, I've never heard a clearer portrayal of the gospel, the power of the gospel that though we're sinful, though we've gone astray, he has come and fetched us and he brought us back and not with the, this is what you gotta do better. He says, I'm gonna clothe you in white and you're gonna walk down that aisle as if you had never sinned. That's what we get to do. Church, how amazing is that? I couldn't think of a better way to spend my life than giving my life for that. Come to the edge. That's where the power is. Come to the edge. Jesus' passion, Jesus' power. We also have to build this church on Jesus' preeminence. What that means to the layman is that Jesus is above all. Jesus is before all. And Jesus is the very end of it all. He is the one who was, who is, and is to come. He's supreme in creation. Scripture says he's the firstborn among creation. He's also supreme in our salvation. He's the firstborn among the dead. And he's the one that will consummate all this at the end. From page one in the beginning was the word, Jesus. He was the lamb slain before the creation of the world, Jesus. At the very end, the last scripture in the Bible says, come Lord Jesus, come. We await for him to come to to wrap it all up as a scroll, to bring this thing up to an end. Jesus is the consummation, the, the desire of our hearts and smack bang in the middle, holding it all together as a cross. 
This is the reality where Jesus is the center of the story and it gets to the point where he takes these disciples, the unlikely, the unqualified, the, the uneducated, takes them right to the edge and he says, I'm gonna build my church. But before we get to that juncture, he says to them, who do you say I am? So people saying it's, uh, you're, you're Elijah, that some people saying that you're John the Baptist, some people saying you're Jeremiah. Jesus goes, yeah, yeah, cool. I love the fact that you're giving me a praise here of what everyone else says. Thank you, I didn't ask for an audit. I'm asking you, who do you say I am? And Peter with all his frailness, with his bad temper, with his arrogance, with his uncomfortable nature being in this dark and dodgy place, with this insecurity about who he is, why did Jesus call me? I should, I'm a better fisherman, I, I'm not a scholar, I can't be a rabbi, what am I doing? I'm feeling so out of place, I should have shaved. Why, why have I got such growth, uh, hair growth as a teenager? I don't know what's going through his head, but I can imagine this moment, it's not, this is not a setup for a, a scholarly answer, but this is the moment in this place where he's having demonic things happening to the left of him, and there's, there's animal sacrifice to the right, and this moment, with his eyes fixed on Jesus, he says, who do you say I am? Peter goes, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. In that moment, all of history, everything that scripture's been building up to, everything that the scripture will be fulfilled in, is collided in one statement. Jesus says, you're right, but this has not been revealed to you by, by earth. This is from my Father in heaven. And Jesus says, on this rock, on this rock, I will build my church. Here's the incredible reality is that I wanna remind us, we have no other message. This church, if you wanna know, what is the next series? I don't know what the next series is, but whatever we're preaching next, we'll preach this. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. We have no other mandate. We've got no other mission. It's Jesus. It's Jesus plus nothing and Jesus minus nothing. Every page of the Bible is pointing to Jesus. Every single page is about him. All of creation is pointing to him. He's the greater Moses. He's the greater David. He's the greater Melchizedek. He's greater than the angels. It's all crescendoing up to him, Jesus. He is the tabernacle. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the one who opens the way for us. He's also the high priest who mediates on our behalf. But he's also the sacrifice that gives his life willingly. He is the whole sacrificial system. It's Jesus. From the beginning to the end, it's always about him. And why do I have to strain that? Because actually so many churches that do not preach Jesus. They preach about the things that he might do. They preach about programs and their strategies, but there's no passion for him. There's no power from him. Why? Because they're not magnifying him alone. We in this church will sing about Jesus, not how we feel. In this church, we'll preach about Jesus as a solution to everything. You've got marriage problems, yes, we can help with counseling, but ultimately that counseling will lead you to bow your knee to Jesus. Jesus is everything. I want to tell you, we will not build the church on anything else, not on social media, not on a preacher, not on a pet ministry style, but on a revelation of Jesus alone. It's like if you've got a wheel. So many often uh, we base our theology with a center and we have spokes going out from it. And, and what we do is we, we all think that we, we can put a different center in there. So we go, you know what? I, I, this church thing is good, but I wonder, you know, my passion is signs and wonders. Now I'm, I'm preaching. I want to see signs and wonders, but they're not at the center. I'm not going after signs and wonders. I'm going after Jesus. Because when I go after him, signs and wonders follow. Because the center is not signs and wonders. The center is not uh, a style of church. A center is not, we need uh, this type of worship music. A center is not great coffee. The center of our church is Jesus. Everything else comes from that. If that is the case, uh, the, where we're going will go straight. When we put something else there, the church will become deformed. Because the church was always made, always designed to magnify him. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. 
I want to remind us that Muslims say Jesus never died, but just went to heaven. Jehovah Witnesses think the cross is pagan and won't display it in their cultic churches. Hindus would believe Christ was crucified, but his death was not atoning for sins. Scientologists believe in volcanoes. Mormons believe in magic underwear. Democrats believe in Joe Biden. Republicans hope in Donald Trump. But we have a king who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and now is seated at the right hand of the Father, having been given the name above every name. This is who we preach, not a political allegiance, not our hopes and dreams, not our our best case scenario, we preach Jesus. He is Jesus who commands the worship of the nations. He is the one who's brilliant and matchless in his worth. He is a mystery, he is an enigma, he is a paradigm wrapped within a paradox, and one touch from this Jesus will change you forever. I remember being in a worship, as we bring this into land, the worship team can start coming up. I remember leading worship at a youth camp with thousands of young kids when, uh, many years ago. And the PA speakers were, were being pushed to the, the highest level. And they were popping and it was loud and it was sweaty and we were going. And as people were worshiping, there was just signs and wonders, miracles breaking out. There was such an appetite for Jesus. And, and I, as a worship leader... I felt like you got to a stage where the band was going. I said, I've got to sing something about what I feel God is doing here. And I felt God was drawing a generation away from safety, away from sanitized living, away from secluded living, suburban type church, and saying, the barbarian way, where we, we are all out for the people. We want to love Jesus' people. We want, to, we want to embrace His power, and we want to proclaim His name. That's all we want to do. We want to build a church that's like that. And I felt, what song best would invite a generation to step into that? And I might have missed the mark because I started to go and I said, I'm on the edge of glory. And I remember people were a bit confused. Some of the leaders were like, you cannot sing Lady Gaga in church, which I've repented for. But let me tell you, it felt like in that moment, everyone backed away from that. You can't sing that. Well, it felt like we were at the edge. And I don't know what your theology is about that, but let me tell you, it was reflexive. I thought that actually so often the church on the edge of glory and they get so close and then they shy away back to their safety. We're so close, we start, to, we start to invite people home, but then it's a little bit inconvenient, I'm out. When it's a little bit dirty, when it's a little bit offensive, ah, demands too much. We come and we wanna pray for the sick, but they don't get healed. And we get disappointed. We, we trust for a promotion, it doesn't come. We're trusting for God to do something miraculous, and it doesn't happen, so we back away. We get a taste of Jesus, but then we also hear the voice of other things saying, well, yeah, but th- what about this? Don't be too radical. You, you, what about your shame? What about your brokenness? Back away, back away. And I feel Jesus in some shape or form is using the, 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 the pagan voice of Lady Gaga to say, church, we're on the edge of glory. We're on the edge of glory. Come to the edge. Step over the edge. Because Jesus says, on this revelation, on this rock, and now this is the big thing as I land. What, what rock is Jesus talking about? Because there's three ways we can go. Theologians, scholars will argue back and forth and some churches have emphasized one over the other. Was he meaning Peter? Because just before this, he says, and you, you shall be called Peter. He changes Peter's name to Cephas, which means rock. And Peter's no rock, let me tell you. Peter's not stable. He's emotionally fragile. He flies off the handle. In the next verse, literally the next two verses down, Jesus is rebuking him and saying, get behind me, Satan. True story. This guy's no rock. This is no Dwayne Johnson. This is a weedy guy who will cut off a soldier's ear and Jesus will say, stop doing that. This is a guy that will be racist and won't want to sit with Gentiles. This is no stable guy around. But I believe, yes, 
not overemphasizing, but I believe at some level, Jesus is saying, yes, and on this rock, not you, Peter, but actually just people like you. I've got a passion for people. And I'm gonna take people who are debauched people, unlikely, uneducated, and I'm gonna take them to the edge. And on these type of people, I'm gonna build my church. But I also think it's not just that. I think he's taking them to a place that is a literal rock. It's a mountain. Caesarea Philippi, where the gates of Hades are, it's a literal mountain. It's a high place. It's a rock that has been an offense for people, a place people stayed away from, a place people shied away from, the the religious elites. And Jesus said, no, we're not going to shy away from it. I'm going to take you right on that mountaintop, looking to the very edge, into the depths of hell itself. And I'm going to say, on this rock, in the darkest of places, in the most disqualified of places, the places you want to shy away from, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. But I think actually there's one more that we need to know. I think what he was actually saying was yes, yes, passion for people. Yes, a passion for his power to be unleashed. But I think he was saying on this rock, meaning on this revelation of Jesus alone, when everything else is shaken, when you fall down and you say, I've got nothing left to say, I've, I've, I've preached, but my, 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 my life is ruined. I've, I've tried, I've made promises, but I keep making the same mistakes. I, I, I've the lost, what people have died around me. I'm feeling disqualified. I feel so in my depression, I can't get out. What remains? I don't feel like anything. Jesus says, on this rock, the revelation of He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He says, I'll build my church. When you're fragile, He says, I can still build my church. When you're weak, He says, I can still build my church. If it's Jesus and Jesus alone. So I wanna land this by asking you this time, who do you say he is? Who do you say he is? Not who do you think he is or what he should be for someone else, who do you say he is? And secondly, start to lean into that with all our hearts and come to the edge and say, I'm not gonna play safe any longer. This is the call to the barbarian way. This is the call to being a follower of Christ 101. This is a call to the church because now through the church. When? Now. Not tomorrow, not when you've got it all fixed to get up, not when you've made all the plans come together. No, now is the invitation. He says now through the church. Who? The church. Uneducated, unqualified, unlikely, you and me, the church. The manifold wisdom of God the multifaceted wisdom of God, the multi-layered wisdom of God will be made known. Jesus says to us, tells us that the simple wisdom was creation. What God created in the heavens and the, the earth, the mountains, the seas, simple for God. He said the manifold wisdom is the thing that angels long to look into. The manifold wisdom is that God became a man and reconciled humanity towards himself by dying on a cross. The thing that angels and demons never saw coming. The thing that you and I can be made righteous and be made co-heirs with Christ is the manifold wisdom of God. And he says this, the secret wisdom of God. Now, when? Now. Through who? The church. What? The manifold wisdom of God. Of God will be made known to who? The powers and principalities of darkness. And what I love about that scripture says this was his eternal plan which he carried out through Jesus our Lord. He's always had a passion for people. He's passionate for you. He wants to clothe you in white. He wants to remind you of your call. He wants to show his power to his church again. A church who are expectant for miracles. A church expectant to see the lost saved. Expectant to see our lives change. Expectant to see a room full with hungry people coming after God. But ultimately he says, I want to be worshiped. I want my name to be made great among the nations. 
Jesus, we want to make Him known and we want to know Him. So why don't we stand to our feet? I want to pray for us. And we're going to land and sing and end this meeting together. As we land the series, we the church, as we embark in a sense as a launching pad into being the church, living as the church, walking the ways of Jesus. If you are hearing today a stirring in your heart, something of God saying, leave the old familiar paths, throw down the white picket fence of religion, pick up the danger and circle path of obedience, the barbarian way, if that's you, like me, desperate to carry his heart, desperate to know his ways, desperately to know him more than anything else, take the world but give me Jesus. If that's you, I wanna call you to the edge, come to the edge, come to the edge, and take a leap of faith. If that's you, lift your hands. If you're coming to the edge and say, Jesus, I wanna come, afresh and surrender to you in your ways, to your blueprints. Lift your hands as high as you can, church. We started the meeting by saying that people who expect and do different things. And I believe this church, as I prophesy, is pregnant. Pregnant with what God is gonna do. That this church is pregnant with the worship of the nations. This, 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 this church is pregnant with miracles. This church is pregnant with finances that will be released to see hundreds of church plants. This church is pregnant with futures, with destinies, with, with, with lives being changed. This, this church is pregnant and I'm expectant and all of heaven is expectant. He says, are you expectant? And it starts with, who do you say I am? Jesus, right now with hands lifted high, hearts abandoned, we say, Jesus, we are yours. We are yours. We live for your fame, your glory, your renown. Now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God will be made known to the powers and principalities of darkness. For this, this was always the eternal plan in your heart that was accomplished through the Lord Jesus Christ. Your name above all names. Your name is above all things. Your name is the name we live for. We lift up your name, Jesus. Why don't we sing it one more time?